We're looking this morning at the subject of God's remedy for guilt, and our text is in Psalm 32. First thing I want you to note is that God's broken law makes for guilt. That's why people feel guilty. Let me read it to you from Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul writes, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is because it is, as John wrote, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is breaking the law, and that's why we feel guilty. I pointed out last week that one does not have to possess a Bible to discover what God's law requires of us. God has written His moral code in the hearts of the most wicked pagan, in the most backwards country in the world, so that men, all men, without exception, know right from wrong. Missionaries find this all the time when they go into countries that have never heard the gospel and don't have a Bible. But they have found tribes, cultures, where they have a law system of right and wrong. And because God's law is everywhere, either it's codified and we have it in the Bible, or it is stamped upon the conscience, when there is a breach of God's law, guilt is the result. You feel guilty because you are guilty. And this is what Paul means when he says, through the law we become conscious of sin, Romans 3.20. That is, we wake up to our position. It's not always pleasant to wake up, but it's always beneficial to wake up. He goes on, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, verse 13 through 16. May I say it this way, it's a great mercy for God to disturb our spiritual sleep. It's a great mercy. It's His grace that you're experiencing when you wake up to your sin. A guilty conscience as a lawbreaker is your wake-up call. Those undisturbed, <laughs> that is to say their conscience doesn't bother them, those undisturbed will sleep away the day of grace in a spiritual coma and they will sleep their way all the way to hell. You better hope that God wakes you up. Paul goes on, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 10. God is in the business, Paul is saying here, of waking us up so that we're not like the rest of the people of the world who are asleep, who are delving into all kinds of sin. He mentions drunkenness. When did that happen? At night, in the dark, you see. That's what most of those kind of things go on. So the question comes, how can anyone be so at peace as a lawbreaker before God as to be unconcerned and undisturbed about his or her spiritual destiny? Unless we wake up and do something about it, nature is going to take its course. And what is nature's course? Paul writes, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot Please God. And you better find a way to please God if you expect to experience His forgiveness and His joy and His peace. Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. So that's nature taking its course. And if nature takes its course with you, it's downhill all the way. You need to wake up to this reality. You don't want to please God. Worse, you cannot please God. His law is too high for you. It's too good for you. Paul was a Pharisee, a seminary-trained theological student. He studied the law of God. He knew it so well that as a rabbi, he could teach others the law of God. Yeah, he knew it so well. But he was proud and he was arrogant. He believed that he did God a great service by persecuting Christians. Like all the rest of the people, he was asleep to his own lawlessness. But God woke him up. And guess what? He used the law to do it. Let me give you Paul's testimony. He writes it for us in the book of Romans. He says, in his own words, Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. He goes on. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. In case you don't know it, that's commandment number 10 of the Ten Commandments. So he's reading the commandments. He's feeling really good about himself, one through nine. Yeah, I didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't do that. Four, no, I don't do that. Five, no, I'm pretty good there. Gets down to number ten, thou shalt not covet. And here's what he says. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. He's saying, God said, don't covet. Boy, that's, just, boy, that's that was me. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I was doing. 
He goes on, For apart from the law, sin is dead. You don't know anything about sin apart from the law. You have to have a law to break to be a sinner, to be a lawbreaker. So he's feeling good about himself. So he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. I was feeling I wasn't a sinner. I was feeling pretty good about myself. He goes on, once I was alive apart from the law. I was feeling good. I was feeling like I'm pleasing God. Uh, this is great. I'm obeying Him. I'm heading for glory. Hallelujah. I'm a good person. I'm a righteous person. I was just doing fine. I didn't have a care in the word world. I taught God's word to others and was convinced that they could have no better a teacher than perfect me. But, he goes on to say, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. Here it is. He's awakened. Awakened to a sin. Now, he was always sinning. But, you, you know, he's got to realize it. He's got to come to that perception. He says, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. And I, wonderful me, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now we know that the law is spiritual. But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Romans 7, verse 7 and following. You'll not find a more accurate confession of guilt in the Scriptures. Wow. And you will not find a more active picture of how God woke him up. He's feeling really good about himself. Now, I rather think he misunderstood some of the other commandments, too, and how they apply. You have to have the teachings of Christ on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 through 7 to really understand what the law is all about. But at least as a Pharisee, he was feeling good until commandment number 10 struck him right between the eyes. And he says, covet, 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 covet. That's me. That's what I do. I always covet what others have. So conviction of sin, guilt, feelings, because of sin is God's wake-up call to you and me that something deadly is at work in our souls. A cancer is there that's eating at our vitals. And unless it's dealt with in the most severe terms, it'll kill you. God's broken law makes for guilt. That's good. If you do not try to deny it or hide it. Praise God. He's after you. If you're under conviction, he's after you. Praise him for nailing your foot to the floor so you can't run and hide. It's good for the law to have this convicting work in your life. Your conscience, it shows that your conscience is alive, that it's active. And we've talked in the past about the dead conscience, the seared conscience. The person just keeps sinning, sinning, sinning. And so their conscience doesn't bother them anymore. But if your conscience bothers you when you hear God's law and God's moral code being taught, 
That's good. He's after you. Secondly, from your bulletin outline, unresolved guilt, unresolved guilt paralyzes initially and kills eventually. When David allowed his lustful looks of Bathsheba to go unchecked, as she took her evening bath in front of an unscreened window, he burned in his heart for her. He just had to sleep with her. And so he commanded his servants, go fetch that woman. She was a married woman, and she was married to one of his most noble soldiers, a good man, an honorable man named Uriah. Uriah's name means Jehovah is my light or my fire. Uriah. He was a man on fire for God, willing to serve both God and king in any righteous way that he could. When Bathsheba became pregnant with David's child, he embarked on an elaborate scheme to bring Uriah home from the front line with the intent that Uriah would make love to Bathsheba so that the love child in her womb would be thought to be Uriah's child and not his. But you know David's wicked plan was foiled quite unintentionally, quite innocently, because Uriah could not bring himself to sleep with his wife while his fellow soldiers were deprived of their wives out on the battlefield. He just couldn't in good conscience do that. And so what did David do? He added wicked to wicked. He added murder to adultery. And he even had the audacity to pen an order to his commanding general and send it using Uriah himself as the courier which ordered David's general to place Uriah in the thick of the battle where he would likely be killed. And honorable Uriah never took a peek at the note. Uriah, the man of integrity, carried his own death warrant to the field marshal who did as David commanded, and Uriah was killed in battle as David had planned. Now a long time passed, and David believed that he had gotten away with these two monstrous transgressions of God's law. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. But during that time, his conscience gave him no peace. Look at our text. He says in Psalm 32, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. What is he saying? He's saying that he became restless. In the daytime, aches and pains made him groan. At night, he couldn't sleep. Now, the weather was just fine. But his strength and his vitality was sapped as though... The mugginess of a hot summer day with high humidity, as though it were suffocating him. Guilt will do that to you. Now, 
what was wrong. Look at verse 5. It talks about the guilt of his sin. His words, not mine. He was paralyzed with guilt. He, he couldn't shake himself loose from his sin. The scriptures tell us that he made a home for Bathsheba and her pregnancy. He married her. He acknowledged her son as his son. But there was no joy in any of this. Isn't marriage and the birth of babies, those are two of the most joyful times in our lives. But not for David. After a long time, after a long time, this went on for a while, Nathan, the prophet of God, was sent by God with this stiff indictment against him. You are the man. You are the man. You did this. You killed Uriah to steal his wife and cover up your sin. Your hands are full of blood. Did Nathan dare to say that to the king? He dared to say it to the king. There's a king over the king. And the king over the king is God. And Nathan was God's spokesman. And when David heard this, oh, Oh, did he get angry with Nathan? How dare you speak to me this way? Do you know whom you're speaking to? I can have your head on a plate. No. Instead, what a relief. What a relief to David. The truth, the truth was finally out. The secret was no longer hidden. Look at verse 5 of our text. Then, then I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. In his other psalm where he talks about his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 and verse 1, he says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, by all rights, David should have been executed for these sins. Both of them were capital offenses in Israel, carrying the death penalty. There was no restitution for these sins. There's no eye for eye or tooth for tooth here. The penalty is death primarily by stoning. But he goes on to say in Psalm 51, as he prays to God, You do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. I could bring a goat, I could bring a sheep, I could bring a bullock and sacrifice it for my sins. But God, I know that's not going to, you don't take delight in those things. He goes on. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, that you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. What you're looking for from me, God, is 
Not a bullock, not an animal, not a sacrifice like that. You're, what you're looking for from me is a broken spirit. I did it, I did it, I did it. I'm sorry, I did it, I did it. How wicked I was and how wicked I am. Oh Lord, remove from me my transgression. Brethren, repentance is the biblical response to God awakening the soul to the guilt of sin. It opens the door for the sinner to run to God for forgiveness and cleansing. And no one does this on their own. I am convinced of that. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 tells us that we should pray for the obstinate and the stubborn. Why? In the hope, listen to this, that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25. They're not going to do it. Unless God grants it. Again, it's spoken of as a gift in Acts 11, verse 18. And there it's called the repentance unto life. That God grants the repentance unto life. So God uses the guilt of our sin to torment us, to disturb us like David, to the point where we're willing to admit our sin. Oh, that the Spirit would disturb our sleep today. That God would awaken our conscience and point us solely to Jesus and His blood. Any other attempt to deal with your guilt will end in futility. You will remain miserable and bitter and alone and eventually stone dead. Without feeling, without salvation. Now if your conscience is bothering you over sin, Rejoice. I'm telling you, rejoice. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. The Lord is coming after you. Now that brings us to the second point in our outline, the power of God's forgiveness. You're not going to twist the arm of God. You're not going to get around Him. And what is more, He's He's has a way to deal with your sin and my sin, but you've got to come His way. Firstly, forgiveness, God's forgiveness, I'm talking about here, forgiveness addresses real and imagined sin and guilt. Just as we saw with guilt and guilt feelings, that guilt is firstly tied to the objective truth of real sin, so forgiveness is firstly objective and it is also tied to real sin. The backpack on Pilgrim's shoulders in our study of Pilgrim's Progress, which we resume tonight, by the way, consisted of the weight of real sin. He's carrying this heavy burden on, he calls it a burden, on his shoulders. So everywhere Pilgrim went, he trudged along, inhibited and slowed by that weight. He didn't just feel that he was guilty. He was guilty. No amount of effort on his part, even listening to the good intentions of some of the fellow travelers, changed anything. In fact, the longer he bore the burden, the heavier it got. So, uh, this thing seems like it's weighing a ton. 
it's getting worse. The pathway became more difficult to negotiate, as we have studied. The hills were steeper. Impediments, both physical and spiritual, tripped him up time and time again. He even took some dangerous detours that delayed his spiritual progress. I'm not coming God's way. I was, to call, I was told to go a certain way, but I'm going to do it my way. Or I've met some fellow travelers and they've said, well, yeah, um, no, maybe you ought to try this other path first. Evangelist, the preacher of the gospel, warned him about straying from the path, but he did it anyway. And he learned the hard way that no one could help him with his burden of guilt but God. And in particular, God the Son on a cross. And there at Mount Calvary, as we studied, something totally unexpected occurred. His backpack full of real sin rolled from his shoulders and away, down, away, down, down, down the hill it rolled, leaving Christian free in body and free in spirit. Now how is it that the cross of the Savior had such an effect upon Christian? Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, compares animal sacrifices with that of Jesus and here's what he says about Jesus. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, that's sin, so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 9 verse 14. Or John puts it this way. The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. It is this purification which indicates that God has forgiven us. Jesus makes atonement for the sin. God does, does not ignore the sin. He deals with it. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible says. And so God paid those wages to His Son for every person whom the Son represents. Well, who does the Son represent? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. John 6, verse 37, verse 40. The blood of Jesus represents everyone who comes to Him through repentance and faith. And if you come, Jesus has these words of assurance for you. He goes on to say, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but raise them up in the last day. And that's resurrection into, unto eternal life. And that's his, that's his promise. That's His assurance. Think of some of the notorious characters in the Bible whose sins have been forgiven by Christ. And we've already looked at David's sin of adultery and murder. Two biggies, if you, that's the way we think. Of the Ten Commandments, these are two biggies. Adultery and murder. But he was forgiven. But there are more. Zacchaeus, we hear this when we're little kids in Sunday school, 
He was a little man, but he was a big thief. <laughs> he stole from everybody. He was a tax collector. He pilfered. He, he, he cooked the books, <laughs> we would say. Rome says to this family, you owe $500 in taxes. He goes, that'll be uh, $750. What do you do with the extra 250 bucks? He was a thief, professional thief. He used his position to steal. And Christ come along, he's up in a tree. Come on down from there. I'm going to your house today. Guy had an encounter with Christ. Was forgiven. Changed his life. So it's all right if I've if I've stolen from anybody, and he's not <laughs> he's not suggesting that he didn't. He just I'm, I'm going to pay it back. What was it, fivefold, something like that? I forget. I'm going to pay it back with interest. That shows a changed heart. Read the genealogy, I can't say that, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, and you might be shocked when you come to verse 5. Because verse 5 says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And on down, all the way down through the genealogy until we get to Christ, who's in David's uh, lineage. But we read this name, Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, she was a prostitute. Residing in the city of Jericho, whose worship switched to God from idols, when Israel came in to possess the land, she understood, this is God. This, these people cannot be stopped. Israel is coming in here, walls or not. Because I've watched them and God's given them victory here and here and here. This city, that city, they all fall. This God is God. I need this God in my life. If I'm good to you, if I'm kind to you, Rachel said to the spies, will you pray for me? Will you treat me with kindness? Your God is God. We read in the book of Hebrews, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. See, an obedience comes to our life. Although, sordid past. And by the way, every time she's spoken of in Scripture, she's always referred to as Rahab the prostitute. <laughs> I wish I could get rid of that label. I'm not that anymore. I think the label was attached to her so that it's a constant reminder of what God did for her. In the day of Jesus, the Pharisees hauled a half-naked woman before him, saying, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. John 8, verse, uh, verse 4. The act of adultery. How embarrassing. How indicting. I mean, there was no way for this woman to weasel her way out of this indictment. She was caught in the act. She was as guilty as she could be. What was the penalty for adultery? Stoning. Stoning to death. And on that occasion, Jesus said, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
John 8, verse 7. And one by one, all of these accusers left until there was no accuser. And Jesus turned to her and said, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave, leave your life of sin. John 8, verse 11. She was forgiven. She was cleansed. You know that sexual sins play a heavy role in the guilt that people experience in their lives. If they have engaged in premarital sexual relations or pornography, I'm thinking of the men now, or any number of other immoral acts, the conscience under conviction can drive you to the brink of insanity. There are people who are guilty of real sexual sins, but they've been cleansed. They've been forgiven by Christ. We just read about some. But what about those people who have imagined themselves as sinners in these areas? If a person has been a victim of sexual sin, such as rape or incest, they're not guilty of sin. But they still feel guilty. This is the dilemma. That people can be guilty of real sin and not feel guilty about it. And then there are people who have not sinned at all, but they feel guilty. Much of this has to do with how trained the conscience is in biblical knowledge. Those groomed in Christian teaching know, that is their conscience has been enlightened, to realize that God forbids sexual expression outside of marriage. So, if they engage in such things, their conscience convicts them, and rightly so. The tragedy, the tragedy as I see it, is those people who have been sinned against. They're the victims of sexual abuse. Oh, and they're in the Bible too. Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped by Shechem the Hivite. Genesis 34, verse 2. You remember the account. You can read about it. She had been raped by this Hivite. Now he later proposed to marry her and all of that, but two of Jacob's sons said, hey, we're not having it. This guy violated our, our sister. We'll take care of them. And they did. Tamar, daughter of David, was raped by her own half-brother and then discarded like a bag of garbage. Read about it. First, 2 Samuel 13. Get out of the house. Get out of the house. She says, why would you send me away? Just ask my father and he'll give me to you in marriage. Get out, get out, get out, get out. Servants, take her out. Lock the door behind her. This is all in the scripture. You can read about it. She went away weeping. And Absalom, her brother, says, ah, I know what happened. I know what your problem is. Peace, sister. Peace, sister. I'll take care of it. Tamar, another Tamar, a different one. This time, daughter-in-law to Judah was raped by him because he thought her to be a prostitute. Genesis 18. He thought her to be that because she dressed with a veil and all of that kind of thing and he didn't know who she was. And scandal broke out when she was found to be pregnant with his child and yet God vindicated her because Judah had not done right by her. He had promised her his son in marriage. Never followed through. 
And she was left without an heir. And the scripture says she was more righteous than Judah. But she was a victim of sexual abuse. Now victims of these kinds of sins become angry. I can see it. They become, become bitter. They become withdrawn. They become timid because they sense something of the shame that has been showered upon them by the wickedness of others. They feel used. They feel abused. They feel guilty when they're not guilty. They feel dirty when they're not unclean. They don't feel forgiven when they are. We got to get this feelings business straight. How does God handle sin? Is he saying, well, if you feel guilty, you are? Well, that could be if it were real sin. But what about these other kinds of things where you're the victim of sin? But you still feel guilty. Well, if you feel forgiven, you are. But if you don't feel forgiven, you're not. Again, got to get it straight. So that's the second point here. Truth first. Feeling second. Get it down. Truth first. Feeling second. How does God want us to live in a world that is full of wickedness and sin? Much of which... If we do it, we are truly guilty through our own actions. It's real guilt for real sin. But then secondly, also, also, not guilty because of the actions of others perpetrated against us. No sin, but we feel quite guilty. Let me say the solution for both is the same. It doesn't matter if you are guilty of breaking God's law and your conscience condemns you as a guilty person or if you are not guilty because you were a victim of someone else's sin but you still feel guilty. Either way, God's solution is forgiveness. You remember Paul, that um, guy that was known as Saul before he was known as Paul? Before God changed his name, he killed Christians in the name of God. Hauled them off to prison, had them flogged, brought them to trial, cast his vote against them, took them out, killed them, executed. Stephen, Acts 7, you can read about it, first martyr in the church. And there Saul got my first victim. And on he went, you read Acts 8, verse 1 and 2, and you will see that he started on a bloodbath against the church of Christ. We'll get these people of the way taken care of, the Jesus way. Here's what he says. Now that's a lot of guilt, isn't it? I don't know how many people he killed or had killed. That's his conscience, but it's, about, it's, it's real guilt, real sin. Here's what he says. Galatians 2, verse 20. I, I, Paul, new guy now, I have been crucified with Christ, and I 
no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's by His Spirit. He goes on. The life I live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Well, crucifixion, as you know, was a Roman form of execution. It was reserved for the worst kind of criminals, guilty of the worst kind of crimes. The law of God, however, stands above any indictment that could be meted out by Rome. And it declares this in the law of God, long before there was a Rome. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And you must not desecrate the land the Lord your God in, is giving you as an inheritance. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 and 23. The curse of God here indicates something worse than death. A criminal is put to death for a capital offense, but after he is stoned to death, he's hung on a tree. He's already dead. The sentence for his crime has been carried out, but the display on the tree shows that he's under God's curse. The curse is worse than the physical death. It is a penalty beyond the stoning. It is to be thrown into the abyss of God's lake of fire. The second death that Revelation talks about. The death of the soul separated from the forgiveness of God. And God did not want such a cursed person to pollute the land. So he says, bury them, get them out of sight. Don't leave them on a tree. Now, let's read what Paul says about the work of Christ. Christ, he's thinking about the cross now. Christ redeemed us. When you hear the word redeemed, always think of um, he bought our freedom. Think of a slave on an auction block and a person is going to buy him, redeem him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Galatians 3, verse 13. He refers to that law. But he says Christ has redeemed us. He's bought us from that curse. When Jesus was nailed to that Roman cross, He took our sin. He took our guilt. He took our curse from God upon himself. Yes, he died physically, but he also paid the ultimate price of the second death, experiencing the curse and the abandonment of God. He died for the sin itself, but also for the consequences of the sin. The shame of the sin, the hurt that sin causes, the guilty conscience that disturbs our peace, the wrath of God for breaking his law. He took all of that, all of that, all of that upon himself. And nothing you ever did and nothing done to you as regards sin is on your record if you're in Christ. Your record is clean. You are forgiven. Forgiven. 
you, as Paul says of himself, have been crucified with Christ. That means sinful you is dead, dirty you is clean, guilty you is exonerated. It's just as though the Romans had nailed you to the cross executed you and figuratively they did because Jesus is the stand-in substitute for all who repent and believe now here's the question do you believe that this happened for you last question Dan in the new, new adult class lectures is dealing with the promises of God and the premise he laid out for us this morning is this. The promises of God are there. You know the promises of God. You can quote the promises of God. If you can't quote them, you know how to look them up in the scripture and read them. All of this is fine and dandy, but that's not the problem. The problem is, do you believe them? Do you believe them? Do you appropriate them into your life by faith. Do you accept that the crucifixion of Christ was an actual historical event with spiritual outcomes for you? And here's where your faith must come alive. He says it, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself, gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. You say, but oh, I, I still feel guilty. Or you say, well, I don't feel forgiven. Uh, 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 uh. Truth first, feelings second. Faith or trust in thus saith the Lord. Regardless of the doubts that God could possibly love us so much as to wipe the slate clean. David in another psalm says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions the Lord does not count against him. What's that? That's forgiveness. That's forgiveness. Now then, lastly, I want you to consider that Satan, a real enemy, is the promoter of doubt and lying accusations. Most of us would acknowledge that we get ourselves into trouble with sin because Satan lures us, using the lust of our flesh, to entice us to sin. We see him as the tempter, believe me, he is that, and a whole lot more than that. But beyond the work of tempting us to sin, Satan's primary work against believers is accuser. Accuser. He is called, I'm reading scripture, he is called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. Revelation 12 verse 10. The Greek word here is two words put together to make one word. Kata meaning against and gor or goral which means a complaint. So to complain against. 
That's an accuser. To complain against, that's what he does. And the interesting part of this word is that it's, it is used of judicial hearings, a court scene where formal charges are brought before a judge. This is not just, you know, some neighbor complaining about the next door neighbor that he lets his dog over in his yard. This is a before the judge court scene. Satan comes before God, the judge of the universe. And he files formal complaints against you as a believer, day and night. He accuses you of sin. And guess what? You are a sinner. So am I. He magnifies your guilt. And you feel the weight of the guilt. He condemns you to die. And you deserve to die. He paints the picture black as coal, and the portrait is accurate. For once, the liar has told the truth. But not the whole truth, so help him God. <laughs> it's a lie in disguise. Why? Because the most important part of the story, he leaves out. out. Paul writes, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you know, there's that Satan. God. No, who can be against us? He goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died even more than that, who was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Oh, so he comes before the throne of God, does he? And he begins to accuse us night and day. But there's somebody sitting there by the throne of God interceding for us. A lawyer hmm, that's pleading our case. He goes on, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Oh, this guy that's sitting to the right of God the Father loves us as he pleads for us. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, are those things going to separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Well, he used to do that, remember? He used to slaughter Christians. Paul's writing this. Now he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons... You devil. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31 through verse 39. And as Paul Harvey would say, that's the rest.
that's the part the accuser leaves out when he accuses us before God's throne day and night. One of the reasons behind Satan's accusations is to exonerate himself as the rebel that was kicked out of heaven. And here's the second reason. To paralyze you from living a joyous, victorious life for Christ. To make your life absolutely miserable. He does this by making you feel guilty for sin, real or imaginary, from which you have been totally and forever forgiven. Fact, not feeling. You may not feel it, but it's fact. He doesn't want you to feel it. Because he's trying to make you waver in your faith. And to doubt the love of God, and most definitely to doubt But what does the scripture say? Let me read it for you. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They, the believers, have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so as much to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. Revelation 12. 10 through 12. No forgiveness for Mr. Devil. No atonement for the sins of demons. The writer of Hebrews says he doesn't give help to angels, fallen angels, but to Abraham's children. So here's the conclusion. If Jesus shed His blood, if His shed blood is your testimony, that's what you're trusting in. It's what you are trusting in for Him to deal with your sin. That's where you're putting your faith. Then God has forgiven you and no accusation, past, present, future, can stand. You need to live your life in the glory of the fact and your feelings will catch up. Facts first, feelings second. We fight Satan with God's word, the facts, which he cannot stand. And that's how you resist the devil. And if you resist him, he must flee. He was a liar from the beginning. The Garden of Eden. With Adam and Eve, he's a liar still. Jesus says, no truth abides in him. Can't stand the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth of God's word. Now, 
all your guilt feelings. I know, probably we're struggling with that. Some of us still feel guilty, but we're forgiven. You say, I don't feel forgiven, but you are forgiven. Rely on thus saith, put your faith in what God has promised to do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Praise God. He's come down and snatched you out of the kingdom of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of light. And you ought to feel good about that. You ought to rejoice in that all the way to glory. No sin that has been in your repertoire of sins will ever come back to haunt you. No sin that's been done to you as a victim can ever come back to haunt you. You're forgiven. You're clean. You're white as snow. We sing it in our hands. White as snow. Praise God. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the gospel of grace. I pray that you will bless us with the truth of it. Forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us for our lack of faith in the promises of God. Forgive us for not really trusting in Christ. We think this is too easy. This is too simple. But uh, for every unbeliever here this morning, they know it's not easy. It's a hard thing to believe in God. It's a hard thing to turn away from sin. God has to grant us repentance and God has to grant us faith. And all he demands of us is that when that grant comes our way, we use it. We do repent. We do believe. Help us not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in Christ. And that blood of yours is so powerful. Satan would not have us believe this, but it is so powerful that it washes the blackness of our sin out of our soul so that we are white. We are white in your sight. That's why we read in the Revelation of these People dressed in white garments, so forth. All of that is symbolic, but it's saying, you're clean, you're clean, you're clean, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. There's no guilt anymore. Lord, free us from Satan's bindings. He's been defeated. He's been thrown out of heaven on the cross. He's been defeated. The keys of death and hell have been taken away from him. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to rejoice in Christ this day and to magnify your grace. The praise and glory of Jesus and the gospel, let us be faithful to it. In Christ's name, amen.